0: This is a Radio.com original.
1: This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNXRadio.com studios here in Los Angeles.
2: And I'm Mike Simpson.
1: Here, as always, to talk about the coronavirus pandemic.
2: The race for a vaccine hitting a speed bump. The Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine trial on pause because a participant suffered a serious adverse reaction. Is this bad news that delays the badly needed vaccine or a good sign that everything's working as it should?
1: And here's a question for you. If there is a vaccine at some point in the future... Can people be forced to get it?
2: Here's what we're not getting. Candy. No No. trick-or-treating for kids in L.A. No. The pandemic has ruined Halloween. Oh. Among other things. No. (laughs) I'll still get you some. (laughs) Thank you.
1: The airline industry is looking to recover trying to stop disruptions. We have some tips, by the way, for navigating the friendly skies.
2: And all this has more and more people wondering about early retirements. Just go off somewhere and be safe alone in a cabin, right? Hmm. We'll look into why and how you can do it.
1: Let's talk about this latest vaccine issue. Dr. Syra Mudad is Senior Director of the Special Pathogens Program for the New York City Hospital System. Doctor, what stopped this trial exactly?
3: So I think it's really important to, to first note that, you know, safety and efficacy is always at the cornerstone when, when phase three clinical trials are being conducted. And this is by no surprise and this is something that commonly occurs during phase three clinical trials, where you may have an individual that has an adverse side effect. And in this case, this particular individual is potentially experiencing transverse mellitus, which is inflammation of the spinal cord. Now, it's hard to tell whether this is because of the vaccination that this individual received, or if it's just through injury, infection, or acute stress. It could be multiple different factors. But that is why they They put a pause in the study, and they look and see what is um, the reasoning behind this potential um, adverse effect. And so I think one thing really just to note, the bottom line, is that this really should provide us more confidence in the vaccine and not less. And the reason why I say that is because it's following the scientific process. And when we have these phase three clinical trials, you have what we call a data safety monitoring board. And this board basically is made up of different experts and specialists that have no financial, uh, you know, obligation. Um, they There's no conflict of interest. And they really look at the study and they look at the participants and they look at the data and they see, you know, how things are progressing. And if they need to put a pause on uh, the, the trial, they go ahead and do so because – This is where they want to make sure things are happening, you know, during the the scientific process.
2: And so this is this is good. Yeah, I was going to say all the tweets get flying. Oh, bad news for the vaccine. Well, maybe it's good news because things are working as they should be working. But on that kind of a note, when there is coverage or when there's a sense among some people that this is being rushed in one way or another, how worried are you as we move forward that just with every story, maybe there's more trepidation growing, at least among some people about a vaccine?
3: I am worried because you know this information is coming from the federal government, the highest levels of the office, trying to rush uh, and have a vaccine available on the market before it goes through the full clinical trials or phase three, if you will. But I am also confident that we have you know rules and regulations in place, and in, and in fact, even you know various pharmaceutical companies, about eight or nine, has sign off signed on stating that they're not going to release the product unless it goes through the proper channels, unless they feel confident this is safe and effective. And so, you know, with that said, while you may have the politicalization and all you know, ulterior motives of why to have a vaccine available sooner rather than later. I do think that, you know, our scientific process and the consensus of our medical community is going to take a stand and make sure that does not happen.
1: Now, what happens if it is determined that this particular injury or illness is directly related to the Oxford vaccine? Then what?
3: Then they look and see, you know, how common this may be. And they may completely shut down the trial. And that is actually not surprising. If you actually look at some of the past vaccines and drugs, uh, you know, that go through various trials, particularly for vaccination, about 42 percent actually – fail phase three, and they basically halt. They, don't, they, they completely stop the trial. Um, and, uh, you know, you have others that move forward that have shown to be more safe and effective. So this is something common. And I think that that 42% is a significant number that actually fail phase three. So this is something that should be monitored. And it is being monitored. And we just need transparency and data.
2: Good thing we have the others out there. Dr. Cyber Madad, Senior Director of the Special Pathogens Program, New York City Hospital System.
1: Once a vaccine is approved for use, a big question pops up. Should companies force their workers to get it?
2: What's the law with that? Brian Weinthal is an employment attorney, talks to WBBM's Cisco Codo to answer those questions.
0: What we know is that in March of this year... The EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, determined that it was permissible for employers to require influenza vaccines for their employees. Now it acknowledged that influenza is not COVID, but it seems very likely that if you authorize one, you're going to be able to authorize and mandate the
4: other. And the idea here would be similar to schools requiring uh, vaccinations. You, know, you have to turn in those sheets showing that you're up to date.
0: That's exactly right. Ultimately, though, there's a difference here, of course, because employees have certain rights. And I think the real question, Cisco, is not whether employers are going to have authority to do this, but rather what the defenses of the employees are going to be if, in fact, they don't want to go out and get a vaccine.
4: I'd imagine religion would be one for people who have some sort of a, a religious issue with getting it.
0: Absolutely. So that's exactly right. We have three that we think of. The first is OSHA, which is the Occupational Safety and Health Act. Under OSHA, the employer can't require you by its action to do something dangerous to you. The second is what you just brought up, Title VII, some type of religious or other objection, in which case the employer needs to accommodate. And the third one that we think of is the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act. I have some type of disability that makes it such that I can't get a vaccine, so you have to accommodate me in some other way.
4: And for employers that would mandate this and then get hit with one of those lawsuits, it seems like that could be really costly. It could drag out for a while, and and maybe some employers don't want to deal with that.
0: You're exactly right. And because of that, at least for the moment, the EEOC's recommendation on the table is that employers merely suggest or encourage their employees to get vaccines, because ultimately we don't know what many of the legal defenses are going to be to the claim that I'm required now for my job and to keep it to go out and get that vaccination.
4: Of course, the encouragement is just that, right? You'll end up with some employees getting it and other employees not.
0: You will, as a general matter, I'm finding that most of my clients' employees, merely out of general fear, are. Anxious to see if they can get a vaccine, because all of us have trepidations and concerns about being out in the world. But we know, just based on the fact that lawsuits are filed and defenses are available, that employers who do mandate vaccines are probably going to run into any number of employees who will assert defenses to it.
4: Thanks so much. Really good insight. That is Brian Weinthal, employment attorney with Burke Warren McKay and Saratella here in Chicago. Looks like employers can mandate you get a COVID vaccine before you return to work.
1: The coronavirus seems to be ruining everything, especially for kids. It ruined school, it ruined Little League, it ruined other sports, and now now it's ruining Halloween. LA County health officials banning door-to-door trick-or-treating.
2: So how do parents feel about this? Let's ask them. Karen has a 7-year-old son, lives in Pasadena. Monica, the mom of a 9-year-old, lives in Woodland Hills, a 9-year-old girl. Uh, Karen, does your son know about this that that we have a ban yet?
5: You know, I held back on telling him the news at first because I knew he would be devastated. Uh, But I actually did break the news to him today, and his reaction was an immediate, (laughs) no! Poor
2: kid. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) So, So that's how he feels. How do you feel about it?
5: with everything going on, I mean it is more insult to injury, but I, I certainly understand it. I think it makes sense. And and my son also had a, a really nice comeback, even though it was so upsetting at first. He said, Well, we can still decorate the house, right? <laughs> so yeah, we're going to do that. Yeah. We'll just go over the top this year,
1: Monica. Uh, so you've got a nine-year-old girl, and and girls are a lot more mature than guys when they're younger, I think. So how did your daughter take the news about trick or treating?
6: Well, she heard it on the news last night, and um, she she kind of took it in stride. She's been she is really mature. She was she, things have kind of rolled off her back. However, she would love to trick or treat. I'd love to take her out. But you know, it's it's just this whole thing. It's just been such a nightmare. With, the, uh, I mean, I, I have friends, close friends who have had COVID. They've survived, thank God. And we have friends of friends. So I just, it, it's such a tough call, man. And it's so hard with everybody having been cooped up. And I also have a son who's 11, so he's been looking forward to it. Um, I, I, in my opinion, look, they have masks on. I think that. I think that it is it can be doable if people who are at risk have to stay behind their doors anyways they can the candy is packaged they you know what i mean the people will stay apart yeah. supervising parents were with our kids um did, I, did you kind it, of
2: do the, the the work in your head like okay if we're going to pull this off how do you think yeah. but was it on yeah. your radar yeah <laughs>
6: Immediately, immediately. I think a lot of parents are thinking this too. We're like, this we we can do it. I mean, there's so kids are going crazy. We've been locked up for months, and adults and it, mental health. It's really not good. It's it, it, we just need a little wiggle room, just a tiny bit.
1: Now let and let, I, let it, me let me ask your mother something, and th- we'll just keep it among us, okay? Just us. Uh, okay. It's coming up to Halloween. The county is banning it, all that other stuff. Your kids really want to go. Be honest. Are you going to take them anyway?
6: Well, not if there's nothing going on. If it's dark because it's banned and you can get ticketed, obviously not.
2: Yeah, if everybody, you know? I guess, pays attention. And,
3: I, I think know, that... Go ahead,
6: Karen. We, we live in a neighborhood that people
5: come from all other neighborhoods to trick-or-treat usually. And I although I, I hear you and there's ways to maybe make it safe, but in our neighborhood, it's usually elbow to elbow. It is a crush of kids and people and i i as sad as it is i think it's the right call and and no i won't i won't take my kid out but we'll work something out we'll take him next door we'll you know get candy we'll decorate it'll be fine you
2: think that's the bigger worry maybe the, the places where yeah it you know it gets super crowded and even the cars have to be careful because there's kids running around all over the place not everybody has the luxury of like okay there's four of us on a cul-de-sac we'll just pop next door really fast
5: exactly yeah i do think that's that's the bigger concern
1: parents one quick question are you going to go to any kind of halloween gatherings yourselves because a lot of adults do you know
6: i don't i don't think so if it's not happening for my kids that would take precedent you know i usually like to do a halloween adult parties but it's not it's i would you know we'll just lay low you know if that if that's the case um some families have bubbles of friends like small bubbles so if We might have a party of just, like, our bubble that we've been seeing. Just, you know, the the tight group of friends, like five, ten people, that's it. But masks on, still being careful.
2: Right. Yeah. A mask under your mask. Uh, I guess you got a whole year to to plan for next year's costume. Monica, Karen, (laughs) thanks so much. Sorry to the kids. Get them candy anyway.
1: The airline industry has fallen from its lofty perch since the pandemic started. Tens of thousands of flights have been canceled due to travel restrictions also. Lots of people postponed plans to take trips.
2: So how are the airlines doing now? What are they offering to lure passengers back? KCBS's Stan Bunger talked to Andrew Watterson, executive vice president, chief commercial officer with Southwest Airlines, said, how is business doing?
7: Well, it's, it's up and down. Uh, when uh, COVID cases spike, it generally depresses people's desire to travel, and, and rightly so. Uh, when the cases come down, then you start to see a natural interest in, uh, in, in travel rising, mostly for leisure, uh, though a little bit for business, especially for those essential businesses.
8: Okay, so um, you have this cliff coming up, the whole industry does, I guess, really, the October 1st end of, of federal support. How does that look to Southwest?
7: Well, first of all, we're very grateful that the uh, federal government uh, stepped in and able to kind of subsidize the paychecks of our workers, the industry workers, uh, for a period of time. Um, Our CEO has already said that we're not going to have involuntary uh, furloughs or layoffs or or, or pay cuts, at least through the end of the year, and we're looking at how the overall air travel demand evolves after that before we we kind of uh, make any further comment on that. But for us, we kept our balance sheet in good situation, so we're able to at least uh, endure this a little bit longer.
8: Okay, well, let's get to questions. Uh, and these come from listeners. Uh, ask us at kcbsradio.com is the email address. Go ahead and submit them uh, as we continue with Andrew Waterson. We'll get them into the queue. First question starts off with a hearty aloha. <laughs> we hope to travel <laughs> for a vacation from SFO with our son's family to Hawaii at some point after the state of Hawaii ceases mandatory quarantines upon arrival. Do you have any indication for when that change might be made?
7: I think that the state of Hawaii now is investigating or in, in implementing a system by which you, a negative COVID test would alleviate the need for a quarantine once you arrive. So they're setting up um, with some local pharmacy chains and such for people to get a negative PCR test. And then if, as long as that's within a certain period of your departure, then when you arrive in Hawaii, you will no longer need to have the 14-day quarantine. And so there's been um, uh, uh, hopes that it would have been done by, by September, but those also didn't come through. So October October is now the working date when that might, um, uh, might roll out.
8: Okay. Next question. I booked a flight for a couple of weeks from now, but now I'm not sure if it will happen. Should I cancel change now or wait to see if Southwest cancels the flight? And maybe you could deal a little bit with, with how much is going on in the area of flight cancellations these days.
7: Well, um, I think if you're traveling, you know, within the, the, the month of September and October, uh, you have low odds of uh, the flight being canceled uh, unless there's some kind of weather disruption uh, that day, if you will. Uh, we try to revise our schedule at least a, a month and a half to two months out so it doesn't impact people's um, uh, travel as much. If uh, the airline cancels your flight, um, then the DOT Department of Transportation regulations means that you may have a refund. Uh, if you cancel it yourself, uh, you can only have a store credit, so to speak speak, at least at Southwest Airlines. We have no change fees. We don't take your money unless you fly. Um, And so with us, if you decide to cancel it right now, if if you have a non-refundable ticket, we'll just give you a store credit for you to travel in the future. Uh, So I think either way, you can have peace of mind.
8: Okay. Uh, Next one, uh, is Southwest requiring COVID testing for any flights? Do you know if any other airlines are requiring it for domestic travel?
7: No, I, we are not. I know of no other airline uh, that's requiring that uh, for domestic travel. The n- testing infrastructure, unfortunately, in the United States is not up to what's needed. And so I think it would be uh, irresponsible of us to go out right now and say, take part of that testing infrastructure and apply it for discretionary travel. So what we're doing instead is making have a multilayer approach that we call the Southwest Promise, which focuses on cleaning, mask wearing, social distancing.
8: Now, let's talk about that a little bit um, because this keeps coming up and we, over the many, many weeks we've been doing this segment, people want to know what is it like on an airplane? Um, what's the air quality situation? What's the cleaning situation? You can speak from Southwest perspective.
7: Well, I think um, on an airplane, uh, you're actually one of the probably safer places you'll be. Uh, number one, everyone's wearing a mask. Uh, we require everyone to wear a mask, employees and customers, as do other airlines. Secondly, the air in the air cabin is exchanged with outside air every two to three minutes, which is far more than if you're inside of a building somewhere. And so it's a lot of fresh air. And that small percentage of, of air that gets recirculated goes through what's called a HEPA filter, H-E-P-A, and that kills 99%. 0.97% of airborne particles, including viruses, and so then that makes sure the recircle there is actually uh, um, uh, virus-free to, to the extent possible. And, so, and then we also um, have everyone's facing the same direction which is helpful. And, number, and then lastly, the air comes in through the top of the cabin and exits by your feet. So the air is kind of going from top to bottom, not side to side. So any, any coughing or expelling of, of people's breath uh, that gets around a mask is being kind of pulled downward, not wafted between passengers. So I think that overall makes for a, a safe environment in the tube.
8: That's Andrew Watterson, Executive Vice President and Chief Commercial Officer at Southwest Airlines. Wouldn't it be nice to...
7: Retire?
8: Yes.
1: Yes. <laughs> well, Mike and I are I won't totally be here tomorrow. To <laughs> well, with all that what's been going on with the pandemic, a lot of people are thinking about what they can do to finally achieve financial independence in case they get swept up by job losses if and when the next pandemic or economic calamity should hit.
2: KYW's Matt Leon talks to Jeff Bush, Chief Operating Officer of Informed Family Financial Services about early retirement and how to make a plan.
9: What we're seeing is this retirement rush is is really affecting certain industries more than others. Like, for example, we're seeing in the teaching profession, you know, a lot of teachers are being asked to really perform under conditions that they're not used to, they're not comfortable with and a lot of teachers are simply saying, well we're not going to do this, we're not going to take the risk and uh, they're you know trying to find ways to retire early.
10: So if I talk to you in January this past January, what was the age people would be talking about retirement and give us some context, what are the ages now you have people seeing what they can do?
9: Well, I would say in January the the age for retirement, you know, we're probably having those conversations uh between age at the age of 62 and 65 or 66. Now, we're seeing those conversations being had with people as early as age 55. It's I'd say 55 to 60 to or 62. So it's really pushed it back maybe, you know, as much as 5 years.
10: What percentage of your clients or the people you deal with are you having this this conversation? Is it a majority of the people that fall into that age group or is it any kind of kind of a rolling number?
9: Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily say it's a majority. I would just say that it's significant. And it's not just teachers, you know, I think when we look at, you know, healthcare workers, you know, first responders, police officers, you know, firefighters, things like that, people that are in, I guess, public service type jobs, and maybe they have resources to do it. You know, maybe they have a pension that they can tap into, even if they're tapping into it early, they're still looking for ways to make it work. So it's that coupled with the unusual stress that has come along with, uh, you know, with this pandemic.
10: So if I'm one of those people in those public service jobs and, you know, I'm at that 55 to 58, I've been doing the right things for the last 20, 25, 30 years looking towards retirement. How realistic is it to try to open the window Early, I mean, you mentioned if you've got a pension, you can get into stuff like that. I'm sure the circumstances vary, but for the most part, is this something that most people can find a way to to piece together, or is it uh, variable?
9: Yeah, it's it's really variable. It really depends on a lot of things. You know, what have you done over the last you know 25 to 30 years? Have you you know have you saved for retirement? Have you socked money away into a uh, into a retirement plan? And then, you know, then you look at the pension, but there's, you know, there's a lot of bridges you still have to cross. For example, healthcare, our Medicare system doesn't kick in until age 65. So if you're going to retire when you're 60, you know, you've got to find a way to bridge that gap for five years. So can you do it with your spouse? Can you buy private health insurance? That's a big factor that you have to get over. You know, the other factor from an income standpoint, how do, you, how do you make that work? Because you can't get a Social Security benefit, even an early Social Security benefit, until you're 62. You know, so you're going to have to rely on other, on other sources. And then if you're working in a, for a public school, chances are that you do have a pension. And if you've been working for any length of time, you know, that's a, that's a decent number. But it's not necessarily the, you know, the 100 percent solution. You know, they these a lot of these uh, teachers are looking for, you know, to, to start other careers or other, you know, other ventures to bridge the gap.
1: What if we already have a coronavirus vaccine that we're using? Not only that, but what if that vaccine is something you're wearing right now? A commentary in the New England Journal of Medicine speculates that a mask could act as a vaccine of sorts. The theory is that masks reduce the amount of virus a person is exposed to. The researchers argue this might prompt the body to produce immune cells that can remember the virus and stick around to fight it off again. Now, it's just a theory right now, and it hasn't been proven in humans, but experiments in hamsters have hinted at a connection between dose- and disease. Earlier this year, a team of researchers in China found that hamsters housed behind a barrier made of surgical masks were less likely to get infected by the coronavirus.
2: So it wasn't like tiny little masks on the hamsters. Yeah, because that tiny, was my first question. I know, they
1: were little tiny masks. And I know and, this is
2: all very serious, but all I could think about was tiny masks on hamsters.
1: <laughs> and they and they tend to wear them below their nose.
2: It's <laughs> not the way.
1: No, no. Falls off every time they go on one of those treadmills.
2: This is why we rule the earth. Yes. Uh, the radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher Find Us There. Stay well.